And if you wonder uh, why we opened up, why we're gathering here, why we, why we will continue to gather um, in some way is because that video, people like what you heard. Um, that brother literally, when I found out, he came to Crossroads and just sat in the parking lot because he so badly wanted to be close, not to this building, but to the people here. And what I've seen in this season, the people who are most hurt are those who are poor relationally, financially, physically. And this is a time for the church to be all that it can be uh, for the cause of Christ. So those who are watching this morning too, um, welcome. Uh, we're all gathered together in this crazy way through all this technology. Uh, but it is surely good to be in this place. So <clears throat> last week when Dan kind of gushed about the fact that he was assigned all the good texts. Uh, do you guys remember that? <laughs> Just know this, okay? Uh, when God put it on my heart to do a series on the Holy Spirit, um, I put that project in his lap, and Dan, along with Tim Bassett, uh, crafted the, the whole series. So was he assigned that text? Yes, but it was also a text that he also designed himself. And uh, so... <laughs> But I want to say this, I say all this just to say how grateful, how grateful we are um, for people like Dan Mike and this incredible team of people that we have at Crossroads and, and all the things uh, that they're doing and all the things that God is doing in them to raise them up uh, to serve us. And so we are now taking the next leg of the journey that Dan crafted and we are in Ephesians 1 today, 1 verses 11 to 14, so let's turn there. And I don't mind if someone who gets there first, because I have graduated to the large print edition of the Bible. Um, so my page number is different than your blue page number, but if someone gets there, just shout the page number out loud of Ephesians 1. You guys are still getting there? Stand for the reading of God's word. In him, Christ, you are also chosen. Literally it reads, you have an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God has a plan. A plan that goes back to the beginning of time that he is perfectly executing. And we can trust him. In order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. We are that rushing waterfall that Annie talked about. And also... And you also, who were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
You may be seated. So continuing our, our series looking at the Holy Spirit this summer, being in the book of Ephesians, as uh, Dan highlighted last week when we were in Romans, um, these are not just theological treatises. Uh, this, this is a letter, just like Romans is a letter. Um, you see it in the first verse. It, it begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints who are in Ephesus. When Paul writes this letter, there are two major phenomena that are taking place in his world. The Roman Republic has become an empire. Now imagine this. That would be as if our president became an emperor and every elected official became nothing but pawns in the emperor's hands. And then also imagine that along with this, the entire media united around the emperor as a propaganda machine, exalting this emperor to godlike status, and then ruthlessly singling out and shaming anyone who stood against the emperor. The last time this kind of phenomena took place in the Western world was in Nazi Germany in the 20th century. And we've all seen those movie clips or those pictures of the crazed worship that the Germans had for their Fuhrer. And sometimes if you look close at those clips or those pictures, you can maybe find one person while everybody has their hand in the air and you know what they're saying. He's just standing there with a blank face. And this is just because the forces of the Nazi propaganda machine were so strong that a whole nation was indoctrinated into this. And if you crossed it or stood against it, your reputation was destroyed. Possibly even you might be put in a death camp. Rome is Nazi Germany on steroids. Nazi Germany, for all that it was, barely lasted a decade. Rome as an empire lasted 400 plus years, and it dominated a very large chunk of its world. And its, its emperor wasn't just given absolute power. Its emperor literally had the status of Lord and God. Temples to the emperor were built in every major city. Cities themselves were named after him. A city in, in, the, in, in the land of the Bible, um, Caesarea, Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Maritime. Even their late Galilee was named after an emperor, Tiberius. And even in some places at some times, you had to pay homage to the emperor to even buy and sell in the marketplace. And these cities also, they competed with each other because they all wanted to become the most all-in in terms of the worship of the emperor. Ephesus, at this time, had easily the largest temple to the emperor with a gigantic statue placed at the highest point in the city right in the heart to say, this city declares Caesar 
to be Lord and God. And at the time of Paul's writing, emperor worship is the fastest growing religion in the world. And the pressure to conform was massive, especially in a city like Ephesus. And to not conform cost a person socially, financially, relationally, and sometimes even more. So while this phenomena, this top-down political power being pushed down upon an empire is taking place, there's another phenomenon taking place. There's this organic, bottom-up movement of Christianity, which was silently going from city to city, literally house to house, as Jesus said it would. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that's in a lump of dough. You can't see it, but it quickly spreads through the whole. Now, these two phenomena could not be more opposite, but the one thing that they had in common was this. They both claimed their king to be Lord and God. So what ensues is this massive confrontation. I mean, think about when Paul says this to Christians in Rome, living right under the nose of the emperor, to confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. To believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we think, ah, all I have to do is pay a little lip service. This was not lip service. Because you were not just declaring with your lips that Christ is Lord. You were also at the same time saying, and Caesar isn't. And this is the world that Christianity was born into, what it was born out of. And this is the context of Paul's letter to this church in Ephesus. And he begins in our text, he says, in him you have, well it says chosen in my NIV, but it literally reads, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance do you even know what that inheritance is? What is an inheritance? It's what you own. It's your net worth. It's the bulk of your wealth. Typically, it's what we pass on to our children. So in that arrangement, if, if you are such a child, it, it's all that's coming to you. You have some of it, but most of it awaits. We as Christians right now, have an inheritance. Yes, there's a lot that we have right now, but there is so much more that's coming. And this is what Paul is talking about. It's pretty amazing. It's stunning, it's spectacular, this inheritance. It's our hope. Did you wake up with hope today? Because this is our hope. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. He says, for you are the first to hope in Christ. What's hope? Hope is, is what we believe about the future. And I don't know if you know this right now, but nothing shapes the present more than hope, than what you believe about the future. 
That's what Ephesians 1 is about. It's about hope and our source of hope. A little bit later in in verse 18, we didn't read this, but Paul says this. This is how badly he wants them to know their hope. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope that you were called to. And what is this hope? It's the riches of our inheritance. Paul says, our glorious inheritance. Now, one of my frustrations in talking about hope is that our understanding of hope is so, so much different than the biblical understanding of hope. I mean, I think for us, hope means more, I hope so. I hope so. Maybe. I mean, hope is something that we do with our fingers crossed. Biblical hope is not I hope so. Biblical hope is I know so. It's this absolute certainty about the future. And here's the other thing about hope, whether you know this or not. The human race cannot live without hope. We are hope-based creatures. We have to have hope to even go on. And our lives are controlled by our hopes, by what we think about our future. And Paul says about these first Christians, they didn't put their hope in an emperor or an empire. They didn't place their hope in the world or the stuff of the world. They didn't put their hope in a paycheck, a degree. They didn't put their hope in romance, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, sex. They didn't put their hope in money, status. They didn't put their hope in, in, in trying to have this comfortable, uh, easy life. They put their hope in Christ. And at great cost to their comfort, their paychecks, their material possessions, their health, all of it. So why did they do this? Because of the inheritance that we have in Christ. Because of all that we have right now and all that is coming to us, do you even know what your inheritance is? Now, the text that we just read uh, spells out the fact that there isn't an inheritance, but it doesn't specify what what it is. But here's what you need to know. We started reading at verse 11, but this is part of the largest sentence in the Bible and maybe the greatest sentence in the Bible. The sentence actually begins in verse 3 where Paul says, blessed be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. And then it ends in verse 14 with these words, to the praise of his glory. And everything in between lays out the massive inheritance that we have right now in Jesus Christ, which is our hope. And this hope, this inheritance begins with verse 3. Our Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Why no amens? Can't believe no one said amen. I'll, I'll give you another chance. No, I know why there are no amens. Because let's be honest, this, this word blessed, which is used three times in here, it, it literally in the Greek is to eulogize, to speak well of. 
to say good words. This word doesn't really mean much in our language. But in the ancient world of the Bible, this is what fathers did. They, they, they gathered their children around them and, and they would bless them. They would eulogize them. I have Jewish friends whose best memories growing up happened on Sabbath. And why Sabbath? Because every Sabbath there would be this meal and at every meal in their home at some point the father would stand up and start with the wife and he would bless her. He would speak well of her. Then he would go to each child and each of them would hear their father every Sabbath bless them, eulogize them, speak good words into them. This weekend, I performed a wedding. At the end of the rehearsal, the father of the groom gathered everybody around him. And he started, and he went right up to the parents of the bride, and he looked them right in the face, and he just said, you guys are amazing parents. And he just eulogized them. And he talked about what an amazing daughter that they raised, and he eulogized her. And then he said, he said, when I, when, when I first heard that there are two things that every child needs to hear from their dad, he said, every day I started to say these words to my sons. He had three of them. He went up to his oldest, David, looked him right in the face, and he said, David, I love you. I'm so proud of you. He went up to his next son in front of all of us and said, Sam, I love you. I'm so proud of you. Then he went up to his third son, who was also going to be the groom. And he said, I love you, David. I'm so proud of you. And then he proceeded to talk about David in front of us and what a great man he had become and all his best character traits and why he was going to make a great husband and, Lord willing, a great father someday. I looked around, everyone was just, that man is my brother. And see, eulogy is something that every heart is desperate for. A heart longs for it. To have the significant people in our life, our fathers, look at us and say, you're awesome. I love you. I'm so proud of you. And here's why this is. Because we were all made for our Father. And I'm not talking about our earthly Father, but we have been made for a heavenly Father. Our hearts need our Father's blessing. We crave his eulogy. The one who made us. Who knows everything about us. And yet still looks at us and says, I delight in you. I love you. I'm proud of you. It is no small thing that when God sets his, his plan in motion to redeem and restore a broken world, it begins with these words to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to eulogize you so that you may bless and eulogize your family and your family, all the families of the world. We are so blessed. We have such a great father who lavishes us with blessings, 
with a eulogy. Second, verse 5. And by the way, in this one sentence, these are all the, 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 pred, the predicate, these are the main verbs. Um, but in verse 5, it says, In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And I heard someone even today say what she was thankful for, and she said, Adoption. We have been adopted. You know, in a city like Ephesus, uh, sex was everywhere. Um, in fact, the largest brothel in the Roman Empire, archaeologists uncovered in, in Ephesus. Um, and this is also a wor- world that had no forms of birth control, so you can imagine all the unwanted babies that this produced. And, and even children that were born into Roman families uh, needed to be presented to the Roman father. And if the Roman father turned his back on the newborn, uh, maybe because of a birth defect or its gender, uh, that, that baby would be discarded. And they were almost always discarded in, in, in the city's garbage dump. Now we know uh, from history that there were two groups of people that, w- that would go to these gar- garbage dumps. Um, the first were slave traders. Uh, they would take these babies, raise them uh, so they could become slaves or so that they could traffic them. But the other group of people that our history books tell us that went, went to these garbage dumps were Christians and they would hang out there to listen for the cries of these unwanted babies so they could take these unwanted babies into their families as sons and daughters. Do you feel the clash of kingdoms? Christ's kingdom, Caesar's kingdom. And I think Paul has this in mind when he writes later in this letter in chapter 4. He says, you are no longer like babies being tossed into the storm. And why not? Because God came along and he saw us in our helpless condition, kicking about in our blood, and he picked us. He chose us. So he could adopt us to be part of his family. Dan was so on last week. When he said at the core of every Christian's identity ought to be this. Because this is the game changer. This is the thing that ought to cause us to walk with our heads up high. With with some swagger and yet some humility. (laughs) Is the fact that we are a child of God or a child of God. And this is our hope. This is our inheritance. And it doesn't stop here. In verse 7, this is also one of the main verbs. Paul says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. We've been redeemed. And, and, and the word redeem uh, is all over the New Testament. Um, and it literally means to buy back. I mean, it's, it's, it's a word that, that comes right out of the world of Ephesus, which had the largest slave market, too, in the empire. Um, it... it, it It means to unchain someone. It means to set them free. 
And it was the goal of every slave to be redeemed, to have someone who would just come along and and pay that ransom price so they could be unchained, set free, redeemed. Now, the fact that God redeemed us means we were once slaves. I know that's hard for us to imagine, but just for a moment, think about all the things that can exercise power over us, maybe even master us. Or think about all the things that that we offer ourselves to, our bodies, our hearts, our lives, and how we can literally become chained to those things. I mean, the older I get, the more I realize the power of such things. Why did this morning, when, when we worshiped, why did that feel so right? It's because God made us and God made our hearts for him. God made our hearts for worship. And if we don't worship God, we will worship something. And we all need to live for something. We all need to know that we matter, that our lives have mean, meaning. And there are a thousand and one things that we can turn to that will scratch that itch, that will fill that void. And oftentimes, those things end up becoming our master. We think we own it, but it ends up owning us. Now, Paul knows all that God was to Israel, how God blessed Israel, chose Israel, adopted Israel as his firstborn son, and then how God went to the slave market in Egypt and saw a people who were chained, and he knew a price needed to be paid, and the price that was paid was the blood of the lamb. And Paul now has come to see that that all pointed to a greater redemption, a greater lamb. Paul says... God redeemed us through his blood. I don't know if you've been taking in some of the things that are going on in our world. I mean, obviously, we're all taking a lot in because a lot's happening. But I don't know if you've noticed that our secular world today has become probably more pharisaical and more unforgiving than at least anything I've seen in my lifetime. Not only will it judge you and not forgive you for things you did 10, 20, 30 years ago, it will cancel you out. Listen to what John Bunyan wrote the classic Pilgrim's Progress writes in one of his journals he said one day I was passing through a field and suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul John your righteousness is in heaven and for the first time I saw with the eyes of my heart Jesus Christ at God's right hand and I said there is my righteousness So that wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks righteousness, for it was always right before him in Christ. And moreover, I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor my bad frame would make my righteousness worth, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he writes this at that moment. 
my chains fell off and I was set free from all guilt and fears and my temptations also fled away and I went home rejoicing because of the grace and love of God. This is our hope. This is our inheritance. And if it stopped here, I think we could say, it's enough. But we haven't even gotten to the main point of the sentence. The main point of this sentence is in verse 10, where it says, God will bring all things together under Christ, things in heaven and on earth, married. Everything is going to be brought together. This marriage is going to take place between heaven, God's space, and earth, our space. I just think about our world right now. Everything is falling apart. Think about your life. It's falling apart. <laughs> think about the things that, that you love that, that can just be ripped out of, of, of your hands. What is aging? What is death? What is war? What is poverty? What is racism? Things that should be together are falling apart. And why is this? Well, it goes back to the beginning of the story when relationship with God fell apart. Everything fell apart. Our relationship to the world fell apart. Our relationship to creation fell apart. Our relationships with each other fell apart. In fact, even our relationship to our own self unraveled and fell apart. And yet this text tells us that everything will be brought together under Christ. In fact, some of the translations read this way, and I think this is the ultimate uh, translation of this word. All things will be summed up or made whole through Christ. I mean, think about what this means. This means that our entire life will someday be summed up in Christ. That Jesus somehow is going to make sense of everything. That his life will make sense of our lives. That every loss, every tragedy will make sense in light of Christ. And not just make sense, but it'll be glorious. There's that last scene in, or one of the last scenes in the last book in, in, in Lord of the Rings when, when it all really looks hopeless. And one of the hobbits, Sam Wise, Sam Wise goes unconscious. And later he wakes up thinking that everything is lost and only discovers that his friends are still there and they're all around him, including... Gandalf, and he just cries out, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. And then his hobbit mind says, I thought I was dead. And then that inquisitive hobbit heart dares ask the question that I don't know if any of us dare ask. He says, Gandalf, 
Is everything sad going to come untrue? Think about that question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Ephesians 1 verse 10 answers that question with a resounding yes. Everything that is sad will become untrue, untrue because everything will be summed up in Christ. Heaven and earth itself will be married under Christ. And see, this is why the Bible, when it talks about this, speaks about the trees of the field clapping and the mountains singing and the rivers and lakes dancing. If they will do that, what will we do? And there's going to be full restoration to the life that we lost, our bodies, our homes, our loved ones, restored, returned, perfected, glorified, beautified, given back to us. C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, has this incredible story. He talks about the, this man on the outskirts of heaven and this guide comes along and gives him a tour of heaven. And he's seeing people everywhere enjoying heaven. And at one point, he sees this stunningly beautiful woman. She's surrounded by all these boys and girls who are dancing. And this brilliant light is just shining upon her. And as they continue the tour, they go from place to place. This man can't get this woman out of his mind. So finally, he says to his guide, he says... You know, I can only partly remember the unbearable beauty of her face. She, she, she was so stunningly beautiful. And then he said to the guide, is, is, is it this person? And the guide says, no. Is it that person? Did I just see that person? No. And the guide said, actually, it's someone that you had never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. <laughs> he said to the guide, she seems to be person of great importance, of great fame. And the guy turns to him and says, have you not heard that fame up here and fame on earth are two very different things? Well, then who are all these young men and women dancing all about her? Oh, they are her sons and daughters. My sir, she must have had a very large family. No, every boy that met her became her son. Every girl that met her became her daughter. Wasn't that hard on their parents? No, her love was of a different kind. When it fell on these children, they went back to their natural parents, loving them even more. And then the guide says this. He says, now look at the radiance of her life and the life she has in Christ from the Father that flows into her and into them. And then he says, and already there is enough joy in her little finger to raise all the dead things in the universe to life. That's our hope. This is our inheritance. This is what we're waiting for. And I know what you're saying. Wait a second. This is a series on the Holy Spirit. We haven't talked about the Holy Spirit. Well... The Father chooses us and adopts us, and like a good Father blesses us, the Son, Christ, redeems us. And then in our text it says, the Spirit opens the eyes of our heart so we can know this hope, this stunning inheritance that awaits us. 
Look at verse 14. Having believed, you are marked with him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Spirit comes into our life. He seals it. He seals us so we can take this to the bank. And it's not an I hope so. It's an I know so. And if you want to know why those early Christians were free from the temporal world and all its stuff, because their eyes were fixed on this hope. If you want to know why they could rejoice in suffering, why they could sing songs in the night when they were in prison, why their life didn't fall apart when their property was confiscated from them, why they could face plagues and persecution with courage, and why they could go to their death without fear. It's because they had this hope. Do you have this hope? Is your life controlled by this hope? Is your life an expression of this hope? You know the difference between the church, the Christians living in Nazi Germany, because I don't know if you know this, but they all succumbed. They conformed and said, Heil Hitler. Not these first Christians. Their hope wasn't in the world. Their hope was in Christ. See, this is why I love repentance. I love it. Because the Spirit at any point can, can put his finger on things in, in my life and he can just kind of press it and press it harder and harder and harder. You see that false hope rod that you've given your life to. And then he opens the eyes and the heart to see the true hope. And in that moment, I get the chance to repent, turn to forsake this. And to put myself in a place where I fix my eyes on Christ. The true hope. God, Spirit, would you open the eyes of our heart so that we could see the hope of our calling and the glorious inheritance that awaits us. Do that work, Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.